this is church history class covering history of the church from the apostles up until today. So let me open in a word of prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for the warmer temperatures today. We thank you for salvation, most of all, and how you've redeemed us from the unbelieving world. You brought us here to study, to be disciples, and that includes learning about your providence, how you've worked to preserve the church and help bring back doctrines from the scriptures that have been lost. We pray that we might continue to see a reformation in our day, a reformation and a love for scripture, a love for truth, a love for sound teaching. So help us to learn from the past so that we might not make the same mistakes and help us to learn from the past so that we might continue to strive for the things that godly men strove for. Bless our time this morning. Amen. So we've been talking about Martin Luther, who he was. He was a monk. He was a Roman Catholic monk that was very conscientious about his sin. He felt like he could never work hard enough. That's the Roman Catholic system is the harder you work, the more likely you can be saved, the less time you have to spend in purgatory. And Luther really um, loved the Bible, but he could not understand how you could be saved. It just seems like it was work, work, work. And he loved the Bible so much, he ended up as a professor, a teacher, a doctor of the scriptures. And he taught at a university. And while he was teaching there, a man would go around named Tetzel, and he would, this man would raise money for the Pope in Rome. One of those many taxes and indulgences that the Pope wanted people to send. So the indulgence would buy your family some time, or yourself some time, out of purgatory. And if you put a coin in the coffer, then you are springing your, your family member out of purgatory into heaven. And Luther got fed up with that. He saw poor German people getting worked up into a frenzy about their loved ones who had died, throwing all the money they had in this uh, coffer. And he wrote the 95 Theses. That's kind of sparked a rebellion against the Pope and the Catholic leaders. And from that point, uh, Luther took a closer look at Scripture and realized that it actually taught salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone. So it was faith alone in Christ that saved, not work. And so that led to more and more books being published. He's called to come before the Holy Roman Emperor and all the, the cardinals and people who were at this trial. And he defends himself by saying, look, these things that I've written, I can stand on them because they go with the Word of God. And my conscience binds me to the Word of God not councils, not popes. He says, here I stand, I can do no other. So as he's leaving this trial, he knows the Pope is going to have him arrested, even though he was promised safe counsel. His friends take him and supposedly kidnap him. I don't know if he knew about it or not. Probably didn't. But his friends took him away to a castle, and he hid there for a time and translated the Bible, the New Testament, into the German language, which is a huge feat in the German language. It locks the language down, the spelling Certain words get locked in the language, much like Shakespeare and the King James did for the English language. Well, he begins to hear some rumors about what's going on where he was teaching in Wittenberg. And so now he returns there. We pick up with the story here. He returns to Wittenberg, and he insisted that these religious reforms proceed with the support of the leader there, Prince Frederick. So each little province had its prince. And from all those princes, a holy Roman emperor was elected over all the German provinces. 
Well, Frederick was his prince, and Frederick needed to come out and support, not just protect Luther, but he needs to support the Lutheran movement, the Reformed movement. So here's some problems, though, with Luther. Uh, We always think of Luther as the great reformer, and he is. But realize he wasn't quite as radical with cutting out things from the the Catholic Church. He He brought the Mass back. It had been removed from Wittenberg when he was gone. So he brought the Catholic Mass back, fasting, and other things that his inferior, his subordinate, Karlstadt, had removed. And remember, his position was, let us retain all that the Bible is silent on. Now, this sounds okay. It sounds wise. If the Bible doesn't speak to it, we can have it in the church. But you soon see where this runs into problems. What about statues? Some churches have, you know, all the American flag. They sort of even pledge allegiance sometimes still to the flag. Other churches have a drama team. They have laser lights, fog machines, trapeze artists. I've seen trapeze artists come across the line in a huge church. Today, you have rodeos in churches. You have tanks. You have race cars. I mean, they they actually bring dirt into these church arenas and have a live rodeo. And they call it, you know, come to church at the rodeo. So Kunda Luther now, these things are not spoken of in the Bible. So technically, we, we could get around it and say it's okay. And so a lot of modern churches practice this normative principle. And his friend Karlstadt said, No, no, let us retain only what's mentioned in the Bible. That's called the regulative principle of worship. We're only going to do in church what the Bible calls us to do. Everything else does not have a place in the church service. Go to the theater if you want to watch a show. Go to the movies if you want to watch a movie. Go to a concert if you want to be entertained with music. That's not the purpose of worship. And this is picked up by Zwingli and Calvin. And the reason that that's what we follow here today Most Reformed people follow the regulative principle. And Luther thought that was too radical. He resisted that. He was a little bit afraid of where that might lead. So here's a couple of guys that disagreed with Luther more and more. They started out as some of his biggest fans, and then they diverged a bit. Karlstadt left Wittenberg, and then a more radical reformer named Thomas Munzer left and grabbed a bunch of peasants with him, and he started a revolt in Germany. Luther supported the right of the nobility to crush the rebellion. So Munzer said, we need to go so far as to reform the whole government, not just our theology, not just our worship. And so he got all the peasants riled up. They took their pitchforks and started to overthrow villages, towns, and cities. And the nobility were a little bit confused in the beginning. They knew they needed to crush this. But these are Reformed people. These are Lutheran people. Do we go fight them? We're fighting the Catholics. That's enough. And Luther said, yes, if it is sin, if people are revolting, that goes against Romans 13, and you should go and crush it. So here's a a painting of the peasants gathering together with their scythes, maybe. So around this time, you remember Erasmus is the great scholar of the Catholic Church at this time, and he's not always supportive of the Pope. Well, he begins to write against Luther. He attacked Luther in his writings and the Reformation, specifically with regard to the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity says that man, after the fall of Adam and Eve, that man is fully given over to his own sin. And he desires to sin constantly, and he, in his heart at least, and often you see that in his life. And he really can't please God, like the Bible says. Man cannot please God. The natural man 
does not even accept the things of God, nor does he desire to do them. And he cannot please God. Well, Erasmus said that goes against free will. You know, people always have the, the issue of free will and kind of the debate going on there. So Erasmus writes a book against uh, Luther. And he taught that freedom of the will was necessary for us to be responsible for our sin, morally culpable. How can we be responsible for our sin if there's no free will? Now, he needs to go to Romans 1. He wrote a book called Freedom of the Will in September 1524. Luther got really worked up by this and said, that's not right. I'm going to write a book against your view called Bondage of the Will. And he really goes after Erasmus. He says some some interesting things, personal attacks against Erasmus in there. But it's a famous book because it has a very strong predestination doctrine taught in there. And it places even stronger statements than those that would later be associated with Calvin. So people often say, if you believe in election and if you believe in predestination today, you're a Calvinist. But if you read this book, Bondage of the Will, uh, Luther says stronger things than even Calvin did. Luther was a Calvinist, we might want to say in today's language. Luther did have, I think, scripture to support him, whereas Erasmus was arguing more philosophically. So here they are against each other. You've got Luther on the top and there's Erasmus. Bondage of the Will. Still in print today. You, you can't find Erasmus's book, I don't think, in print. You might might get somebody to print it for you somewhere, but you'll have to get it online for free because nobody's selling hard copies of it anymore. So Luther gets married. Uh, even though he was a monk, he realized, hey, that's not the right kind of life. If, if you desire to get married as a Christian, you should be able to. And he actually encouraged all of his monk friends to go pick up nuns and marry them. And so he meets Katarina von Bora, and she was a former nun. And, and what they would actually do is they would go into these nunneries. They would send like a merchant in there to sell his items to the, to the nunnery. What's that called? Convent. They would get nuns to jump in the back of the wagon, cover them up, and roll them out so they could escape. Because there's no way to really get out unless you did something like that. And they would bring them to these reform guys who were looking for wives. And I'm not sure how the matchmaking went after that. But during these years, after his marriage, Luther established uh, evangelical worship there in Wittenberg. His reforms included an emphasis on preaching and on the religious instruction of children. Celebration of the Lord's Supper without Christ being sacrificed anew. So he, he did eventually get away from the Mass. Services being performed in the language of the people in German. This was a big deal because it had always, it had always been in Latin. You can't understand it. There hadn't been a focus on children. There hasn't been a focus on preaching. And he wanted to focus on Christ as the mediator, not the Virgin Mary. Now, he did have some strange things to say about Mary, but he didn't see Mary as the mediator that the Catholic Church does today. He meets another reformer, a reformer named Ulrich Zwingli, and he wants to discuss how they can get together. So this whole meeting in 1529 is how to get the, the Lutherans, led by Luther, with the Zwinglians, led by Ulrich Zwingli. Let's get both branches of this Reformation together. So they met and they started talking and it came to the Lord's Supper discussion. And they're meeting there at a castle in Marburg, Germany. And Luther said, look, there is still a real presence of Christ at communion. So the Catholics say that you turn the elements into the blood and body of Christ. You say this prayer, the commoners thought it was hocus pocus because it had the the, Latin's, the Latin words that sounded like hocus pocus. 
priest is up there doing magic. He's, he's converting just a piece of bread into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ. That's called transubstantiation. It's not biblical. Luther realized it's not biblical, but he still said, well, there's some presence of Christ. It doesn't turn into it, but it's around and in and through, and it's called consubstantiation. Still today, people can't really figure out how, how to think about that. Consubstantiation. It's not really turning into it, but it's around, through, in. Well, Zwingli said, no, the elements are symbolic. They're symbolic. This is more along the lines of what we teach and, and think of today. They're symbolic. They're, they're not turning into Christ's blood and body. And there's not a sense where his blood and body are around and through and all of this other stuff. And Luther got pretty upset. He's a very fiery guy. And he said, I'd rather drink blood with the papist than drink wine with Zwingli. That's a strong statement. Zwingli was a fellow reformer, and uh, he got very mad. He just kept saying, supposedly he was pounding on the table, saying, uh, this is my body. That's what Christ said. This is my body. Not, this is a symbol of my body, Luther would say. But then again, Jesus said, I am the door. We don't expect he turned into a door. And he said, I am the great shepherd. And he wasn't actually out there watching real sheep. So he's using metaphors and when he said, this is my body, they're looking right at his body. So his body can't be in the bread if they're actually looking at him at the Last Supper. So we've got to think those things through. Well, the uh, Lutherans all got together. They grew to such an extent that they put together a confession. A confession is a doctrinal statement of what a group of people confess, what they believe. And they did this at another diet or diet of Augsburg. They met there in Augsburg. And uh, really, by this time, the emperor is uh, okay with Protestants. And so he says, I need your support. I have these Muslims, the Turks, they're at my back door. And uh, I can't have Catholics and Protestants fighting in my, in my empire. We need to get together and fight the Turks. So get yourself together, you Lutherans, and figure out what it is you believe and how close it is to the Roman Catholics so we can agree on something. So Melanchthon, Luther's friend and confidant and helper, he created what's called the Augsburg Confession with Luther's help. And there's 28 articles, 28 statements, and they're working on a, a previous article called the Articles of Marburg and Schwabach Articles. And there's an effort here to bring unity with Catholics. Not in the way we think of today, not in... Oh, why can't we all just be one church? Why can't we all be saved? But it's really just putting in writing what we believe. That's what they were doing. And then comparing it to what the Catholics believe. The Catholics ended up accepting nine of those articles. Six, they could accept them with some qualification. And they condemned 13. So I'm not sure the, the unity was all that helpful. At least Charles V is now okay with the Lutherans, and I think they go ahead and join up and, and fight the Turks. So here's the Augsburg uh, meeting, Augsburg Confession. So here's some of the weaknesses in the Lutheran Confession, and this is a, a formal Lutheran Confession today. It taught baptismal regeneration, baptismal regeneration, which means that baptism saves you, that it makes you born again. And some Lutherans, most Lutherans still believe that today. That idea of consubstantiation, that Christ is somehow in and with and around the elements in the Lord's Supper. Also, the 
lost could take the sacraments. The lost could take communion, and it wasn't a big deal. They denied eternal security. They did not mention anything about end times, and they attacked the Anabaptists in a very unfair way. We'll get to the Anabaptists in a moment. But not everything the Anabaptists taught were, was wrong. And yet they, they still are attacked by many Presbyterians and Reformed today. Here's some strengths, though. Here's some good things about that confession. It affirmed justification by faith alone. It was a little bit weak the way they affirmed it, but maybe that's because they didn't want the Catholics to reject it out of hand. They, they still ended up rejecting it anyway. They said, look, we each have an individual right to interpret Scripture. You don't have to go to the Pope. You don't have to go to the priest to figure out what the Bible means. You can study it yourself, and that's okay. Uh, they taught that the church is an invisible group of saints. Now, this may not seem important, but what it means is just because you see people in your building on Sunday doesn't mean that's the church. The church is made up of people who truly believe, who truly have faith in Christ. And they're justified by faith alone. So you might have a mixed, and often you do, you have a mixed congregation in each church group. You have some people who think they're saved, but they're not. You have visitors who aren't saved. And even around the world, just because they associate with the church doesn't make them Christians. And just in this day, just because the Pope said somebody was a Christian didn't mean that they actually were. So in Luther's day, the Roman Catholic Church told you if you were a Christian, and they told you who wasn't a Christian. And Luther says, that's not how it works. There's lots of believers, saints, all around the world. And you don't see them all. It's as if they're invisible. Not, not as if you're staring at them and they disappear. But you cannot see them all. You don't always know. Strong statements on the doctrines of God and of Christ. He talked about original sin, which is denied often today. In opposition to abuses of the... Catholic Church. By the way, Luther, Luther starts out very, we would say Calvinistic. He starts out very Reform-like. As time goes on and after he dies, Melanchthon sort of takes over the movement. And Melanchthon wasn't as strong on predestination and other things. And so today's Lutherans are actually much closer to Melanchthon's views. And many Lutheran denominations have gone very liberal. But even their official doctrine is I think R.C. Sproul called it Melanchthonism often more than Lutheranism. Let's talk about Luther's last few years here. He, um, he was very prosperous until his death. He had money coming in from books. He had money from teaching. Uh, the, these universities and seminaries and colleges converted over to Protestantism. In those days, it, it wasn't just you yourself, but your whole town, your village, your province would be Protestant as soon as the leader agreed to that. He becomes the dean of the theological college there in Wittenberg. His authoritarianism grew as a result. So he's kind of the head of the movement. He's not the pope, but he's the head of the Lutheran movement. He took the Bible into German. And uh, he had already done the New Testament. He finished up the Old Testament in 1534. He esteemed all of Scripture, but viewed some books as less valuable. So this is kind of a quirk with Luther. He didn't like Esther and didn't think it should be in the Bible because it didn't mention God. He had some problems with Hebrews because it was a lot of Judaism, he thought. James, he didn't like and, and had questions about whether that should be in Scripture. Jude and Revelation. So uh, he didn't think they were all that valuable. He would include them for tradition's sake, 
but he wasn't, he didn't like James because he thought it went against justification by faith alone. Because there's that whole verse on uh, justification in James. So, you know, even Luther's not a perfect theologian. Luther's intolerance for his detractors increased after 1535. And it got worse to an almost fatal gallstone, which plagued him constantly from 1537 until his death. He was deeply affected by the death of his daughter at 13. And he died in Eisleben on uh, February 18, 1546. He traveled there from Wittenberg to help his siblings resolve a civil dispute regarding the mining business that it inherited from their father. Only a, a few miles away from where he was born. And so he was born and, and died very close together. Yeah, I don't have a slide on it, but one of the problems in Luther's later life is he had been hoping the Jews would be converted. He had hoped that the Jews would turn to Christ. And he thought, well, with the reform movement, with all these reformations, clearly now they'll see the true Christ. They'll hear the gospel. They'll be saved. Well, as time went on, the Jews were still stubborn and adamant that the Messiah hasn't come yet. And so there's always a question in the Middle Ages as to what to do with the Jews because they gather together in groups. They tend to have wealthy businesses. They do well in business. They make a lot of money. Uh, Christians start to think, well, they are getting what I deserve. And so the leaders always had to decide what to do with the Jews. Well, the Crusaders often just destroyed Jewish villages on their way to the Crusades. Well, by this time, in the beginning of Luther's time, he is saying, let's Let's evangelize the Jews. By the end of his life, he says, no, let's punish them because they're stubborn. They've had their time to believe. And he said some vile things about the Jews. Things that later Germans and Nazis even will cite Luther on. Not that Luther was a Nazi, but he just said some very sinful things about the Jews that he should not have said. All right, let's move now to the Anabaptists and radical reformers. Now, if you listen to some Reformed people today, they would tell you the Anabaptists were the heretics of the Reformation. Uh, others won't say they're heretics, but they will downplay them and say basically uh, people who disagree with modern day Reform, certain Reformed people are more like the Anabaptists. And then uh, we can all agree that there were some very radical Reformers. We've already talked about Thomas Munzer and the Peasants' Revolt. Well, there's going to be some other men who do some crazy things during the Reformation. So there's two primary issues that split Protestants from the Catholics. The authority of Christ and his word and the church. That was one big issue. And then the nature and essence of the gospel. So sola scriptura and sola fide. Those are the main issues that Luther brought to the forefront. They're not going through all the ten sections of systematic theology that's not a movement where they're trying to write new theological books. But they are focusing, first of all, on sola scriptura and sola fide. So within those Protestant groups that split off from the Catholics, the main lines of division were with regard to the understanding and observances of the ordinances. Communion and baptism. Those were the big issues. We already saw where Luther and Zwingli couldn't agree on the Lord's Supper. They couldn't agree as to the meaning of it. And that's pretty important. When you're celebrating the Lord's Supper, you want to have agreement on that. And that's why you're already starting to see uh, different groupings of Reformed people. We, today we call them denominations. 
And the Catholics will say, oh, you have 30,000 denominations today. Look at how much y'all split up into little groups. And they say, we're the one mother church. Well, first of all, there's not 30,000 denominations. A lot of them start and disappear. Some of them go liberal. But even then, within Catholicism, you have the charismatic Catholics, and you have the non-charismatic Catholics, and you have those who are in the cult of Mary, and all these different cults of the saints, and all these different breakdowns, and each country has its own little way that they worship according to the Catholic Church. So there's a lot of thoughts even within that big movement. But it's okay to split away from someone if they are not teaching the truth, if they are not teaching according to Scripture. And even on secondary issues like baptism, that's an important issue. If you don't believe in baby baptism, it's going to be a hard thing to baptize your babies. Obviously, you'd be going against your own conscience. If you don't think Christ is magically coming down into the bread, then that would be blasphemous to sit there and have this priest say all this funny stuff. And so with, within Protestant groups, you even have some splits happening early on. There's the magisterial reformers, uh, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin. And, and they're magisterial not because just because they're great. I mean, of course they are. But they worked within the government of their land, the, the magister, the rulers. And so they divided from the other Protestants, or you might say the other Protestants divided from them, over the issue of baptism. So Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin could agree on baptism, but there were other Protestants who were convinced that only believers' baptism was prescribed by the New Testament. And these were called Anabaptists. And Anabaptist just means baptized again. Anna is, is means re, so they're re-baptizers. And they were called this by those who did not like them, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin. And they accuse him of being baptized twice. You get baptized as an infant, they say, because everybody did in those days. And then later, you, you say you believed and got baptized again. That's a re-baptism. Now, I would say, and sometimes people say that to me, I've been re-baptized ten times or whatever. Well, there's only one true Christian baptism after you were saved. And I know people call the other thing baptism. And I guess if you strictly go by the word baptism, it was a dunking or a shower, or whatever, but um, I just say sometimes jokingly, that's just a bath, um, and you know, there's one one baptism, and Paul says that, you know, there's one baptism in Ephesians 4. In response, the Anabaptists claimed that their infant baptism was not real, and therefore did not count. So the main issue with the Anabaptists, the main reason they form up in their own groups, is because they say you should wait to be baptized until you're a believer. So here's uh, some defining aspects of the Anabaptist movement. There's a number of distinct groups ranging from politically radical. Some said, we're not just changing our baptism practices, but we're going against the government. And then there were some that we would agree more with, the solidly evangelical. So the reason that the government was an issue is because to not baptize your infants was going against the government of the day. It was making society unstable. And everyone did it. You needed to go ahead and do it. If you didn't, you were really standing up as a rebel. And so some people said, fine, I'm a rebel. And they went off and truly rebelled in groups and armies and such. 
The enemies of the Anabaptists tended to group them all together, though, and say they're radical reformers. Much like today, uh, sometimes, you know, since we teach a premillennial view and a, and a pre-trib rapture, someone might say, well, y'all are just like John Hagee. Y'all believe just like John Hagee, and y'all are just like him in your theology. We have a lot more in common with the Presbyterians down the road than we do with John Hagee. Um, but sometimes uh, names and attacks get thrown around like that. Anabaptists include, these were the original group, spiritual mystics, Caspar Zwenkfeld, political fanatics, mainly inspired by Luther himself, the Zwickau prophets. That's a cool name, Zwickau prophets. And this guy's got a nice last name, Storch, Nicholas Storch, Jan Mathis, John of Leiden, and Thomas Munzer. We'll look at those guys. And then the better, I think, Anabaptists are the Swiss brethren. They were inspired by Zwingli's teaching. And today we have uh, what's called the Mennonites and the Amish. They come from this movement. Uh, the Mennonites from a guy named Menno Simons. So let's go through. We're going to go through now some of these crazy people and not so crazy people. Andreas Karlstadt. Remember Karlstadt is trained by Luther. Uh, this is Karlstadt with a K, but it's the same guy. Just depends on if you spell it in the German or the English. Uh, he was a faculty member with Luther at Wittenberg. He preached while Luther was at the Wartburg Castle, hidden by his friends. And he's the one who said, get the mass out of the church, get the icons out of the church. Luther comes back later. He says, look, you're too radical. We're putting some of this stuff back in. And uh, Karlstadt said, I'm not radical. I don't, I don't want to do violence. We just got to remove this stuff. So eventually he left. He goes to Basel to teach. And uh, he began to write on some ideas that the Anabaptists will later pick up. The next uh, guy that we're going to look at, Ulrich von Hutten, he said, no, if we're going to really make a difference, we've got to do this by force. And he was a knight in the um, Imperial Knights of the Holy Roman Empire. So his idea was, let's go all the way with this. Let's get an army together. Let's do this by force. So he led the Knights Revolt. He got a group of knights to revolt against the empire in 1522. And that quickly was defeated. Later, he tried unsuccessfully again to convince Erasmus to join the Reformation. He thought, well, if we can have Erasmus join us, we can rebuild our forces and really fight. Uh, this doesn't work. That's why Jesus said, lay down your sword, Peter, when they come for you. Uh, there is self-defense, but there's not Christians joining together to make a spiritual theological revolt. Now we come to Thomas Munzer. He was the German radical who turned against Luther. He's the guy we already mentioned that led the Peasants' Revolt, the Peasants' Rebellion. And uh, that took a lot of lives. You can imagine these guys with their farming implements going up against knights on horseback and armor, bows and swords. There was a lot of poor people killed. And his battle cry was all things in common. Does that sound familiar? Any, any modern day philosophies that say all things in common? What is that? Communism. This is one of the, and you start to see this with some of these radical reformers, a type of communistic government. After being defeated, he was tortured and killed. Uh, before his death, he supposedly recanted. Now we come to Schweckfeld. Schweckfeld again was influenced by Luther, also the radical reformer Munzer, and the other guy we looked at, Karlstadt. He said, I reject infant baptism. 
I reject the trans, uh, consubstantiation of, of Luther. And he said, uh, we don't need to split off into denominations. There should just be one true church. And he said, instead of a real presence, he taught the spiritual presence, that believers feed on Christ spiritually. And I don't know the details of what he's um, saying in his view, but at the surface of it, that's not a bad way to say it. We don't actually eat Christ in that sense, but he is with us spiritually in the Lord's Supper. Um, later, his followers are the Swink. Swink? Anybody know how to say this right in German? Swinkfelders? They're still around today in Pennsylvania, in the U.S. Uh, they, I think they came over around the same time as the Amish. Then you have the Zwickau prophets. So today we have all kinds of prophets in Kansas City prophets. But these are the Zwickau prophets in Saxony, in Germany. And they're led by Nicholas Storch and another guy, Marcus Stubner. And they wanted to bring spiritual change through political means. Let's set up a new government, a theocracy like Israel had, where God reigns over us. They claim to be acting under the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit. They're going to go out and set up a new government. And the Holy Spirit is telling them to do this. And they're going to bring about the end times mentioned in the Bible. They're Anabaptists because they're rejecting infant baptism. And so they arrive in Wittenberg in 1521. They take over for a little while in town. And they're removed when Luther comes back. Because he pretty much shoots holes in all their theology. And then they get kicked out of town. Melchior. How would you like that name? Melchior. Melchior Hoffman was influenced by Luther. He's a lay evangelist preacher. So this is, is a big deal because in the Roman Catholic system, you had to be approved. You couldn't just go out and evangelize publicly or preach. You needed to be approved by the church. And he says, look, I'll go preach if I want. And he did. Um, he agreed with Zwingli on the Lord's table. He was rebaptized. We'll just say baptized in 1530. He said, Christ is coming back in 1533. And he's going to establish a new Jerusalem in Strasbourg. So now we start to get people predicting Christ coming back. And they're going to say, let's make it happen. Let's help him come back. He went to prison because of his rebellious views and died there. Well, quickly following him is a convert of his named Jan Mathis. Or Jan, if, if you want to say it that way. Jan Mathis. He identified Munster, the town of Munster, not the guy that we already looked at. That was Munster. This is Munster. He said, no, no, it's not Strasbourg like my superior said who died in prison. It's Munster. And so he went and took over Munster and died there when the army came to remove him. John of Leiden, he was a disciple of this guy. And so you can see how this continues now. He's a political leader in Munster. They held the city for a year and set up their new government, the theocracy that had been talked about. It was communistic and polygamous. They went in, they killed a bunch of the men, and then they took all the women that were left and split them up between these guys. After Munster fell to Franz van Waldeck, John of Leiden was captured, tortured, and killed. Uh, I think one of these guys also said they were the returned Christ, setting up the new Jerusalem. Uh, the Munster Rebellion. So 10 years after the Peasants' War that we talked about, this is where these guys took over in Munster, and they wanted to set up this theocratic kingdom. We just talked about John of Leiden. He's made king. Yeah, so he declared himself a descendant of David. Pretty much saying he's the Messiah. His army gets defeated in 1535. He's tortured. He's killed. 
His remains were then put up like they did in this time in a cage. You hang it out the, the, the tower of the castle and you look up and say, I don't want to be like that guy, rotten up in the cage, his body, his bones. He was tainted. Uh, he tainted the Anabaptist movement for years to come. So in the Lutheran area in Germany, they're not going to be very friendly towards Anabaptists for a long time because of guys like this. After the Munster Rebellion, Anabaptists generally embraced pacifism, religious liberty, and the separation of church and state. So today, why do the Amish and the Mennonites not want to take an oath, not want to join the military? Why are they pacifists? Well, many scholars argue it's because of all these early rebellions, and they said, look, this doesn't work. We need to be pacifists. We need to go off and start our own little communities out in the country, get away from the government, and not swear any oaths. So they started talking about separation of church and state, which had never been discussed really before this time. Now we get to guys that are a little better, to Swiss brethren. Now they, they have the Swiss brethren in uh, Switzerland, and this is where Zwingli was. Um, the Swiss brethren started out as disciples, disciples of Zwingli. Uh, Zwingli held to a believer's baptism for a while. When he split from the Catholic Church and led his city away from that, he was a, we would call an Anabaptist for a while. He was convinced later that that would disrupt society too much, and so he went back to the belief of infant baptism. Um, he's considered, uh, the Swiss brethren are considered to be the fountainhead of the Anabaptist movement. So these are the more theological guys. These are the guys who lived because they didn't get killed by the armies when they tried to take over cities and stuff. Uh, the Swiss brethren didn't believe in that. Their big issue was baptism and separation of church and state because obviously they want to worship, they want to live, and they want the state to not interfere with that. So here's some key figures, and now we even get to the colored paintings. The first guy, George Blarock. So he's aligned with Zingli's more radical followers. He desired to follow only what the Bible prescribed. This is a good thing. I only want to do what the Bible says. He rejected the Mass. He rejected infant baptism. He rejected religious images. He gets kicked out of Zurich. That's where Zwingli was when another Anabaptist, Felix Mance, was executed. He gets burned at the stake two years later in Italy. So the Anabaptists are hated by Catholics, and they're hated by a lot of the Reformed and Lutheran movements as well. So this was his friend, Felix Mance, follower of Ulrich Zwingli. He later became dissatisfied with Zwingli's slowness to enact reform. So he thought Zwingli's not going fast enough in Zurich. He was one of the first to be baptized. So of the Anabaptist movement, this is a, one of the first guys to be baptized with his friend Blarock and the next guy we're going to look at, Grable. He was executed by drowning on account of his baptism. So what happened is, in Zurich and other places, the, the reformed, the magisterial reformed, said this is too disruptive, it's an attack against the government, and you're going to be punished. The punishment is death, and since you want to be baptized, we'll help you with that. We'll baptize you again, you rebaptizer, by tying some weights to your ankles with chains, and throwing you overboard in the river. So many Anabaptists were drowned, both by Catholics and the magisterial reformers that were drowned in the river. Conrad Grable, born into a prominent Swiss family. This is another Anabaptist leader. He follows Zwingli. He's a friend of the ones we've mentioned before. He is really considered the father of the Anabaptists, though he died very early in his late 20s. He performed the first 
adult baptism on his friend, performed the first adult baptism. He died of natural causes. So that's a good thing in church history. Sometimes it's good to die as a martyr. I don't want to belittle that. But so many of these guys die for the faith that it's good to survive and die of natural causes. Getting a little bit better as we go along because the movement is developing, the theology is developing. Here's uh, Balthasar Hubmeyer, an excellent preacher, ministered in Austria. He met with Zwingli. Zwingli in Zurich, he defended obedience to the scriptures. So he goes to Zwingli and he defends, look, we need to be baptized as believers. That's what the scriptures say. He abandoned infant baptism, baptized in April 1525. He goes to Zurich to escape the police that are after him in Austria, but he's arrested in Zurich by the police there and tortured. He's later sent back to Vienna, Austria, and executed. So now we're up to Minno Simons, probably the best of the Anabaptists, Minno Simons. He's trained as a Catholic priest, but he begins to study the Bible over the issue of communion. His brother Peter had been killed in 1535 for some differences with the Catholic Church. And so he wants to look up this issue in the Bible. He's trained as a priest. He should be able to study the Bible, and he starts to have questions. By 1536, he says, I'm fully in the Anabaptist position. He said, let's separate from the world and let's be pacifists. So that's not necessarily a good belief that he held to be pacifist. But uh, there is a type of separations that Christians need to have with the world. And it's hard for us to imagine today because we live in America. But the Americans, or early British settlers who rebelled against their king, did so because they wanted more separation from the government. They couldn't practice their beliefs or live and properly be represented. We'll maybe come to that later in church history. These guys were the early get away from the government control of the church and what we believe. And it was costing them their lives, so you can understand. Uh, Today, we have the Mennonites, which come from Menno Simmons. Now, most Mennonites are going liberal like every other denomination. But the Mennonites are really all over the Midwest and, and up until the, to the north. They often live on their own places. It depends on the type of Mennonite. Some live in their own communities. Some live just in the farming communities of Kansas. The Amish always live in their own community unless they leave. That's the difference. And the Amish are even more serious about being pacifists and following all the roles of their founders. So how did the Reformed, other Reformed, respond? Well, they opposed any kind of armed revolt. That's true. That's good. They opposed adult baptism. Not so good. The reform responded by opposing this separation of church and state because in that day, everything was married together and they felt like that the state could help the Reformation. So we won't go into the positives and negatives of that right now. They saw Anabaptists as dangerous, though, theologically and politically. They responded with violence against them. And in many cases, distorted their views in order to prosecute them. So there were good and bad reasons to uh, support the reformers. So this is John Calvin. He gets a pretty bad rap these days. But just like with Luther, there's positives and negatives. I think there's more positives with Calvin than there is with Luther. Our church is in much closer agreement with Calvin than with Luther. But each man had a role to play as providence went along. And what Calvin is going to do is do a lot more in the department of theology. Luther is the preacher of the Reformation. Calvin's the theologian of the Reformation. 
Uh, Zwingli had a role to play in a lot of those things. But Calvin, his first goal is not to be a preacher, although he becomes a good preacher. His first goal is to become a theologian who writes good books for pastors to read and Christians to study and understand the Bible better. So let's just talk about his early life. He's born in France, Neon, France, 1509. So he comes a little bit later um, in time than the guys we've already looked at. His father was a cathedral notary, kind of an official who could sign documents for the cathedral in his city, and also a registrar to the ecclesiastical court. So his dad works in the Roman Catholic system. His mother dies when he's young. His father, Gerard, intended that his three sons join the priesthood. So he wants all of them to go into the priesthood. There's Calvin, not as a toddler. Obviously, he's a young man there, though. He's already got the beard going. That's the hat that Erasmus wore. These were the scholarly-looking hats of that day. His education was supported by an influential family, and they enabled him to go to college in Paris, and then uh, later a different college there. His focus was on Latin and philosophy. So the best way to go into any field in those days, and even up until modern times, is to study Latin, philosophy. You can even add Greek. And so around... 1525, his father withdrew him, though, from that, and they enrolled him in the University of Orléans to study law because his father realized that he would earn more money as a lawyer than as a priest. So at some point, his dad says, look, I want you to be a lawyer. They make more money anyway. Well, in 1529, Calvin enrolls in another university, and he wants to study Greek there. And he's very intrigued by this humanistic movement, this idea to get back to the original sources. Let's go back and read the original. Even if that's the philosophers of Greece and Rome, you needed to learn Latin and Greek to get back there. He's not so interested necessarily in the Bible, as far as we know at this point, more in philosophy. Around this time, he's converted, though, and he begins to break with the Roman Catholic traditions. Calvin doesn't write on his conversion a lot. Luther writes on his conversion. He's very specific. He tells you, what's going on, what he's reading, what the verse was from Romans. Calvin, he just sort of refers to it later in some commentaries in the preface. He doesn't talk a lot about himself. He talks a lot about God and his writings, not himself. I think uh, Calvin's first publication was on a philosopher, the Roman philosopher uh, Seneca. He writes on Seneca and publishes a book. So there's the university there. That's a hallway, I guess. In 1532, he gets his license to practice law. But by 33, his good friend, Nicholas Kopp, who's the rector of one of the colleges there in Paris, gives an address publicly outside on the need for reform in the Catholic Church. It's one thing to believe different than the Roman Catholic system. But now, if you go public, you're putting a target on your back. So he addresses subsequently uh, what he said was deemed heretical. And he was forced to flee. So he had to leave town because the forces in Paris were going to capture him. Well, Calvin's associated with his friend. So now Calvin has to leave. And uh, he spends the next year in hiding. So suddenly, this is going to be Calvin's life. He's not the guy that's out front, but he gets sort of drug along. And eventually God puts him out front. Things grew worse in France. Catholics responded violently against many Protestants. In eight, I'm sorry, 1534, Calvin fled from France and finally joined Cop in Basel in Switzerland. And that's where he's going to stay for the most of his life. So 
He's French, but he ends up in Switzerland. He's a young man. He's been run out of France with all this education. What is he going to do? There's where Nicolas Cop preached that reform. Today they have a statue there. You can go and check it out there in Paris next time you're there. If they let you out to come back home, you can tell us about it. Let's look at his early ministry. So he's published a book by 1536. He publishes a book on doctrine. It's a very small book at this time. The first edition of his Institutes is very small. But he wants to put together a book to defend the faith and instruct Christians, especially pastors, and his native country of France. So Switzerland is a free place. It's a neutral place. He can write there. And he goes back to France for a bit. Then he decides to go to Strasbourg in Germany. But he can't get directly there because there's French troop movements and there's a war going on. There's a battle going on. So he has to take a detour and he ends up stopping over in Geneva. He just wants to stay one night in Geneva with his friends there, uh, the reformers. And one man, William Farrell, a very fiery, red-headed preacher who was there temporarily as a preacher, he was a fellow French reformer, convinced Calvin to stay and help reform the church there. At some point the next year, Calvin was made the pastor in the church. And now the story goes is that Calvin's just coming through. He wants to write books. He's kind of hopping from city to city. He's escaping persecution from the French and the Catholics and also taking his books and teaching. Well, William Farrell says, look, Calvin, you need to stay here. We need a preacher. This place needs a preacher. There's a growing movement here. And Calvin says, you know, I just want to sit back and read books and write books. And Farrell says, you know what, Calvin, God will curse your books and you if you don't stay here and preach. That scared him. He's a young man. This old preacher scares him. And he says, fine, I'll stay. So that's how he becomes the famous preacher of Geneva. So here's sort of a, a pencil drawing on this. He expected to be in the city for only one night. Farrell heard of this famous scholar and the author of the Institutes, and he rushed over to recruit him. Calvin's not interested, but he is eventually convinced. All right, that's enough for today. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll pick up next week with Calvin and the Reformation. Lord, we're thankful for church history. We learned so much. And let us be like these men who are not scared to stand for the truth, even when they had to run from persecution, even when some of them were martyred for the faith. Let us stand for the true faith in Scripture. Help us to be strong men and women in the church today. In the name of Jesus, amen.